Cooper, why are you smiling so much? Did Blake Lively finally follow you back on Instagram? No, you goon. Although that's, that's a sore subject. No, I got his tickets to Tenet. We're going to go see it right after UFC match. Ah, great. Who did you kidnap this time? Nobody. I don't even got a scheme this time. They're playing Tenet at the local movie theater. All we got to do is wear a mask, just like Bane. I don't know, Cooper. What if there's a bunch of people there? How can we social distance when there's, I don't know, dozens or even hundreds of other Nolan fans sitting all around us, ready to defend the quality of the movie before it even starts? Ah, Cobb, you big goof. You really think I didn't think of that? I bought all the tickets in the theater, so we'll be the only ones who get there. Huh? But wait, Cooper, how could you afford that? You don't even have a job. Oh, well, that might have been a scheme. See, I asked your mom for your password to your bank account. I'll pay you back later. Ah, jeez, that's what you said when I paid for our flights to Australia, and the bus that took us to Christopher Nolan's yacht, and the cryogenic lab that froze our bodies so we wouldn't have to wait to see Tenet, and when you flew to Los Angeles for the Green Lantern premiere, and you didn't even see Blake Lively. Don't worry, Cobb. It'll all be worth it. You'll work extra hard at the True Value store once we finally get to see Tenet, and all will be right in the world. The disease will be gone. The skies will be clear. Blake Lively will return my phone calls. Things are gonna look up for us, old buddy, old pal. Cooper, did you really have to get a whole tub of popcorn? How are you going to eat that with your mask on? Aw, oh, don't worry about that. I'm so excited I'll probably finish the whole thing before we even get to our 27th trailer. Ah, the movie theater. Just for us. This is it, Cobb. We're finally going to see Tenet. And the way Christopher Nolan intended. There's an old Native American proverb that says, Inside every person, there are two bears forever locked in combat for your soul. One bear is all things good. Compassion, love, trust. The other is all things evil, fear, shame, and self-destruction. Uh, Cooper? You didn't tell me Maisie Williams was in this. <sighs> Classic Nolan and his tricks. And wait, is that Anya Taylor-Joy from Playmobil the movie? Ah, that's just Robert Pattinson. What a chameleon. Cooper, I don't remember the trailers having a bunch of kids with superpowers in an abandoned hospital. And this is Christopher Nolan, so how is there more than one female character on the screen at the same time? Ah, uh, well, obviously Christopher Nolan is shaking things up a bit, changing his style, and leaving us guessing. Uh, Cooper, I think we're watching the wrong movie. I think this is Words on Bathroom Walls. What? No, you idiot. This is all part of his big cinematic puzzle. It'll make sense in the end, I promise. Well, that's it. That's the whole movie. You still think we watched Tenet? It's still light out. That movie was only an hour and a half. Well, so is Dunkirk. What's your point? Cooper, I'm starting to think you only like Christopher Nolan movies because you think you're watching a Christopher Nolan movie. What a bunch of god motherfucking sh**. I'll prove it. How? I'll buy out this theater over here, and we can watch the entire movie. Wait, what is it? And who made this trash? It's called The Personal History of David Copperfield, and it was directed by Christopher Nolan. 
What? Really? Well, then we gotta go see this. It's his next cinematic masterpiece. Yeah, sure, Cooper. You bet. I'm gonna go to the bathroom now and never come back. Oh, I get it. You're gonna reverse time just like in the Tenet trailer. Wait, was that not in the... Oh, well, I'm sure no one will explain it in this David Copperfield movie, his next tour de force. Hey, Cobb, while you're out there, can you go get me some Skittles? Uh, Cobb? Cobb? Welcome once again to Cinemaholics. I'm John Agroni, box office columnist for Adam Tickets and editor-in-chief of Cinemaholics.com. And look, it's the pop culture writer for Cinema Blend, and he also reviews films for Cinemaholics. Hey, Will Austin. Hey, John. Will, uh, you know, this isn't a normal week, is it? Well, what's a normal week for us, John? That's a good, good point. But a normal week is it's you and me, and we're hanging out, and... You know, it's just the two of us, and it's yeah. been like that for we a while. We can make it if we try, yeah. We've tried a lot, yeah. and some would say we've not been that successful. I would say that. Oh, boy. But we have some pretty exciting news to share. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of listeners know when we started Cinemaholics in 2017, we were it was the two of us in like the first couple of episodes, and then we brought on a third co-host, Maverick Hines. Shout out to him. I uh, still yeah. talk to him regularly. He's doing well. He's uh, living his life up in Seattle and enjoying every second, as far as I can tell. But yeah, yeah. But at the end of 2018, Maverick moved away and uh, no longer on Cinemaholics. And it's, you know, it's been tough. I mean, I like having three people on the show. It's fun. You get a really good range of opinions. And sometimes like they see things that we wouldn't have even thought to have seen. And overall, it's it's just nice. It's a nice uh, rapport, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I would agree. Yes. Well, I've got some great news for you. I don't think you know this. Yeah. Well, I I, I think I do, but sure. <laughs> yeah. I'll try to I try to set it up as like a sure. surprise or yeah. something. <laughs> we we have an official co-host. I did an official like third co-host, I should say. Mm-hmm. We did tease this last week, and uh, I think I think a couple of people guessed, and nobody guessed correctly. But uh, I did ask people not to guess, because then you're just gonna get disappointed. You're gonna say someone totally out of left field, and that's what happened. But anyway. We are officially welcoming welcoming to the show our new official co-host. So excited. Now, you've heard this voice before, and I think a lot of you are going to be pretty thrilled. She is the film editor for The Pitch with bylines all over the web from Slash Films, Crooked, Marquee, and so many more. Welcome aboard, Abby Chessie. Hi. Thank you for welcoming me. What a, what a lovely welcome. We're so excited uh, to have you on as the third official Host, you've been on the show a bunch of times, and uh, how does it feel to be? I mean, you were always a cinemaholic to us, but now you're like, you know, a regular star, a series regular, I guess we could say. Yeah, I am. I my name is Abby, and I'm a cinemaholic. Wow, I'll I'll try that again. <laughs> my name is Abby, and I'm a cinemaholic. <laughs> Hi, Abby. Yeah. Um, Hi. <laughs> so, Abby, uh, you know, a lot of listeners know stuff about you at this point, but uh, some might not. So. You know what? What I kind of mentioned some of the things you do, but what have what have you been up to? What's your sort of uh, what's your sort of work right now in general? Well, I am doing a lot of freelance work all over the place most of the time. Uh, I, uh, like you mentioned, am the film editor at the Pitch, so uh, I have a pretty regular feature in their print magazine uh, about once a month, as well as just reviews online. 
um, just this last month, uh, the uh, editor-in-chief and I, Brock Wilbur, worked on a um, investigative journalism piece about uh, workplace conditions at uh, the Alamo Draft House here in Kansas City, um, which is up at the Pitch website, if anybody's interested in checking that out. Um, yes, we will and... link to that in the show notes. And well done. That was uh, fantastic reporting. Thank you. Yeah, uh, that was uh a unique experience in my life. Um, and I am happy that I was able to help, uh, some people get some important information and stories out there. Um, and yeah, if you want to follow my work and figure out what it is I'm doing from week to week, uh, you can follow me at, uh, at Abby Olchesi, A-B-B-Y-O-L-C-E-S-E at, uh, twitter.com. It's easier to spell than it is to say. So, <laughs> Well, uh, we're super happy to have you here, Abby, and uh, as a regular co-host. And uh, let's just get into it. uh, Well, first off, of course, we have some featured reviews we're going to get to later in the show. We are going to be reviewing the new Disney live-action remake of Mulan, fittingly called Mulan. That'll be our first review. And then we'll talk about I'm Thinking of Ending Things, the new Netflix film directed by Charlie Kaufman. But before all that, you can find more episodes of Cinemaholics, including our full archive on cinemaholics.com, including written reviews. There are some movies that are freelancers uh, already you know, reviewed for us in written form that we didn't check out. So Love Guaranteed, you can find a review for that, along with Mr. Soul, which comes highly recommended from one of our main writers, Adonis Gonzalez. Now, if you want to write into the show, let us know what's on your mind. Uh, send us an email, cinemaholicspodcast at gmail.com. We got an email this past week, uh, a recommendation, our first recommendation in a while from somebody um, email-wise. Um, Alex wanted us to check out The Vow. And so I added The Vow to my HBO Max list. And I'm, I've heard it's uh, it's a tough watch, but I am preparing myself to check that one out. And uh, last, you can support us directly by becoming one of our monthly patrons on patreon.com slash cinemaholics. All right, let's get into our off topics. First off, Extra Milestone, our latest classic film anniversary podcast uh, hosted by Sam Noland, almost a directed by Sam Noland. I guess that's true in a sense. He invited on Anthony Battaglia to talk about two of the biggest and most consequential blockbusters of all time. First, there is Jaws which is celebrating its 45th anniversary. They talked about that Steven Spielberg film, of course. And then they talked about The Empire Strikes Back. It's kind of amazing that that what a double feature. Uh, I, I feel like I'm saying that every week, but that has been kind of the theme because it's like we're, we're catching up with like the summer months and these are the big summer 10 pole movies. Pretty soon we'll be getting back into, you know, less big blockbuster stuff because this is a lot all at once. But yes, they discussed... The what many consider to be the best Star Wars film, the second one that came out in 1980. You can check that out right now. And Sam wanted me to set the record straight because I, I said he did irresponsible stuff or told a story of being irresponsible on the Shining episode. And he he explained himself and told me the full story that didn't make it to the final cut of the um, of the podcast. So this, so Sam Sam told me to set the record straight. This is me doing that. All right, and we have one other bonus episode. We had two bonus things this past week. A lot of content flying. Hope you're all enjoying it. But Will, you you took the reins. You were like, I'm not waiting for John to watch Tenet. Screw that. Sure. And it's good that you didn't because I still haven't seen it. Uh, you did a Tenet bonus episode. What was that about? Yeah, well, I mean, it's about Tenet. It's about the new Christopher Nolan movie oh. that uh, 
inexplicably to me and many others decided to come out during a pandemic and uh yeah i got to see it and so did charlie ridgely who was on last week's episode and my good friend Corey woodruff and so we got to discuss the film uh spoiler free if you want to check it out if you haven't seen the film yet you can still listen in i think it's a really fun in-depth conversation and uh yeah i think it's worth checking out but yeah it's as for the film itself i would wait until it's not in regular theaters but yeah I just wanted to give that caveat. I say that like 50 times the episode, but I just wanted to say that here as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Good that you do. Good that you do. And that episode is out right now, along with Will's written review of Tenet on Cinemaholics.com. And a special shout out to every one of you who donated to the Starlight Children's Foundation, um, dedicating it to Chadwick Boseman. We've seen a lot of response to that. Hoping to do some more things in the future. If you haven't checked that out yet, links in the show notes. But uh, to honor Chadwick Boseman, we are supporting one of the causes that he supported, which is the Starlight Children's Foundation, which is dedicated to providing kids, seriously ill kids, with entertaining things to make them happy and to uh, bring them a little joy while they're in the hospital. Things like video games and movies and all kinds of fun stuff like that. And uh, don't forget, we also, if you go to the website, you'll see they have a stream for Starlight campaign. Highly, highly support you look into that and thank you everybody who has donated so the response to it has been uh really incredible and uh it's definitely a testament to bozeman's impact on people uh to inspire them to give back in this way so thank you once again and uh with that uh real quick let's let's get into some things we've been watching uh, on the streaming services and beyond uh, i want to first uh point out two shows that i saw the first one was uh ted lasso I don't think either of you have seen Ted Lasso yet or checked it out. I have not. Okay. No, me either. It's the new Jason Sudeikis starring show. It's on Apple TV plus uh, disclosure as usual. I work for Apple. I don't work for Apple TV, but Ted Lasso is a show about a guy who's a uh, football coach in America who becomes a coach for soccer in England, which is called football over there, of course. And hijinks ensue, of course, and everybody hates him, but he is the most persistent, optimistic guy, despite all of that. And I got to say, you know, the first episode of Ted Lasso, I was like, you know, this is fine, I guess. I don't I don't see what the fuss is about. I don't know if I'm going to watch the second episode. I watched it anyway because it was so recommended. People were like, this, this show is amazing. And I was like, well, maybe it's the second episode where that really kicks in. And that is the case. I, I was totally swooning for this show by the end of episode two. Uh, I, I finished episode six, which you can check out the first six episodes right now. And then it's coming out every Friday from there. It's on like episode seven is going to be coming out the Friday after this episode airs. And I highly recommend you give Ted Lasso a shot. It is very entertaining. It's weird because it's not the funniest show or anything. It's just got like a sweet heart to it that is very infectious. Like it, I told Will... When uh, I was telling him I had checked this out, I was like, this, this show is healing me. I, you know, it's like I'm in a hot spring or something and it's, I don't know, it's doing something. So that's Ted Lasso. Recommend that. A show for people who don't want to be healed right now would be Raised by Wolves. This is the show for people who watched Prometheus and Alien Covenant and were like, you know what? I want more of that. Really, Scott, don't listen to the haters. Give us everything fun. you got unfiltered. I mean, I enjoyed Alien Covenant and to an extent Prometheus. So I, I'm not me. saying that that's a super <laughs> rare thing, right? I know yeah. a lot of people. Who but you're saying that in kind of a dismissive way. So I want to. Oh, thanks for pointing that out. I do not yeah. mean it in a dismissive yeah. way at all. I, I think that it's it's perfectly valid to really enjoy those films. They're, they're going for a certain 
type of like vibe that I know some people shake their heads at. They're like, this is not the alien that I like. But Ridley Scott, for the first time in decades, directed a couple of episodes of a sci-fi show. His son directed a couple more. And it's called Raised by Wolves. It was created by somebody else. Uh, I forget his name, Andy something. I don't want to say his last name incorrectly. Or it, actually, it's Aaron, excuse me. And it's called Raised by Wolves. And it's this sci-fi series that, look, it's got androids in another planet trying to raise artificially birthed humans. That's that's the premise. And it goes in so many directions from there. This show has Travis Fimmel in it from Vikings. This show has Amanda Collins, who is like, I don't know. She she's doing something in the show that I've never seen anybody do before. And it's not the easiest show to get through. It's got critics kind of divided at the moment. I'm barely like a like a fresh rating on it, but in a sense that it's so impressive, the production design for this show. Abby and I were actually talking about this and we're going to transition to another HBO Max show, actually. Um, kind of talking about how when you see HBO put budgets into their shows, you really see it. And like the quality tends to reflect it. And that's mostly the case with Raised by Wolves. But uh, Abby, you, you've you been watching something that's been on our radar for a while. A lot of people are talking about this one, Lovecraft Country. And uh, so you, you're caught up on this one, correct? And uh, what, what do you think of what do you think of this one so far? I am. I am caught up on Lovecraft Country. Um, I like it a lot. Uh, it's a it's it's a it's a fascinating show for a variety of reasons. Um, the uh, kind of the main, uh, I guess, theme of the show is is taking um, content that is sort of connected to the stories and mythos of uh, the writer H.P. Lovecraft, um, who uh, famously has had kind of a um, uh, we'll say spotty, mostly negative, uh, record on, uh, writing about race in America. Yeah. Um, and, uh, comparing that to the actual horrors of racism in, uh, mid-century America, basically kind of combining the two. Um, so you have like cosmic horror with like the horror of racial injustice, which is a fascinating combination. And, uh, the thing that I appreciate a lot about it is just the amount of, um, energy and experimentation that goes into every episode of that show. Um, the, the, uh, pilot of it is, uh, about a, um, a, a Korean war soldier Atticus, uh, played by Jonathan Majors, who is kind of a exciting rising star who I'm, I'm so happy to see in a leading role in a show like this, um, who gets a letter from his father, um, saying that he has a, kind of birthright on his mother's side in uh, New England that he needs to come home and and collect. And he gets the sense that his dad might be in danger. So he goes home and goes on a road trip with his uncle, uh, Courtney B. Vance, and uh, his childhood friend, Letitia, who's played by uh, Journey Smollett of Birds of Prey fame most recently. Um, and they go and check it out. And that's that's like the the pilot of the show is them kind of finding that birthright um the next three episodes kind of go in wildly different directions which i think is fascinating uh i think you could easily say that there is about a season's worth of television packed into uh episodes two and three at least um which has like all the setup and all the payoff um and and almost kind of throws you for a loop in in terms of how they actually connect to each other 
uh, and the uh, the fourth episode, I think, is about the closest it's come to feeling like a serial. So it'll be interesting to see where the rest of the season goes from there. But uh, I just, as a as a viewer, appreciate stuff that challenges me not just on a socio political level, but a creative level. And I feel like Lovecraft Country does a great job of doing that from week to week. How many uh, episodes are out so far? There are a total of four episodes currently. Okay. And they're about like an hour long, 45 minutes to an hour? Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. They're, yeah, an hour long. And I think you'll be surprised with how much uh, the show's creator, Misha Green, can cram into that hour. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm definitely going to be checking this out. And I think I think th- this is one of those cases where I've been hesitant because I feel like I'm going to become obsessed with this show and I don't want to wait every week. But, you know, at some point, I don't want to get spoiled on anything. So I think I am going to take the plunge on this sooner rather than later. And I think, well, you said you were probably going to check this one out too, right? Yeah, no, I'm excited for it. I want to check it out. I actually have a couple screeners I got uh, and I've been playing them off for reasons. I don't know why, but uh, yeah, I've heard it's really good and I'm really excited to check it out. So I'm glad to hear it's good. Absolutely. All right. We'll finish this out with uh, the last thing that you saw besides the big reviews and everything. <laughs> you you saw a little movie that we none of us thought would see light of day on this podcast. A little movie called really? Unhinged, starring Russell Crowe. It seemed like that. We passed the release and neither of us sure. saw it. And so I was like, okay, well, I guess Unhinged isn't going to get its time in court. But here we are. So uh, what's the verdict on this one? Yeah, I mean, I think I was planning to initially see it. I just I couldn't go to the drive-in the week it came out because the weather wasn't cooperating. So I, I put it off for the next week and I got to see it then. And uh, because I wasn't here last week, I couldn't talk about it. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's too much you can really say about uh, Unhinged that isn't pretty much apparent from the get go. But um, it is very much a like kind of like falling down sort of like parable about like fear of like, I guess, like kind of like a suburbanite type fear of like what could happen if you like mess with the wrong people and then like the movie has this weird thing where it's like an epidemic of rudeness is going over the country and what could happen if you know you tick off the wrong person and it's a very silly dumb premise that i can't tell how much the filmmakers are in on it as far as like they seem self-aware enough to like make it short and like pretty goofy but it also has this really dour type tone throughout to the point where it's just kind of like I think they could have had a little bit more fun with this, like maybe acknowledge that it's just really silly and dumb and just play with it up. And I think that's certainly the case for Russell Crowe, who is, you know, just chewing scenery and heaving and just like giving this performance his all. And I think what would otherwise be like basically a red box rental of a movie. And I'm assuming his involvement is the only reason why they even considered putting this in theaters, let alone regular theaters uh, right now, because I mean, there's nothing really to this, I think warrants the theatrical release but i think at the drive-in it's fun i mean you can make fun of it in your car and you don't have to worry as much about the ongoing pandemic and you can uh kind of tune out during the other scenes with the other characters who are considerably more boring and less interesting than our uh star in this so if you're just looking for something kind of trashy and silly with russell crowe giving a bizarrely very committed performance um this is a fun rental i guess but it's not a good film and I would not uh, go out of my way, I guess, to see it. So uh, if you were, I guess, even the least bit tempted to do so, uh, keep that in mind, I guess. All right. Well, I, uh, interesting to hear that. Yeah, about what I expected. 
And I almost saw Unhinged by accident because I was on the wrong screen. I was supposed to see New Mutants. And yeah, I realized, oh, wait, this is Unhinged, so I got to get out of here. But anyway. Sounds like the opposite problem of uh, our friends of ours. <laughs> A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. So this week for our listener voicemails, we asked you, are you going to pay $30 to watch Mulan on Disney Plus? That's the deal right now. If you want to watch Mulan right now. The only way to do that in the United States and many countries that have Disney Plus is you have to pay $30. You could split that cost with your friends, of course, if you don't want to pay that much. But uh, you have to pay $30 for what they're calling premier access. And I thought it'd be fun to ask the listeners to chime in on this since everybody has different situations. Some people have family. Some people are more interested in this than others. And we got a bunch of responses. We're just going to play three right here. And uh, don't forget, so we use the Swell app. For our listener voicemail, Swell's great. Uh, link to it in the show notes, as always. You can find our profile and answer any of our prompts, and we just might play it on the show. So thank you, everybody who chimed in. Don't forget to say your name, where you're from, if you're willing to do that. But yeah, let's start here. So I was thinking about this, and in my position, I would be watching this with probably one other person. So it would come down to about $15 per person. Uh, although Average Joe mentioned you'd own it, so you'd get to watch it repeatedly. That being said, how many times would I watch this movie repeatedly? Probably not enough for it to be worth the amount of money I'm spending. That being said, $15 per person is less than what I would be paying to go see the movie in my neighborhood. Uh, there's everyday matinee prices of right around $6, $7 uh, at, at theaters near me. That being said, uh, when, you're, when you're paying to go to the movies, you're paying for the movie watching experience in the theater, and they adjust the prices. They increase them, you know, whether your film is 3D, 4D, uh, you have one of those fancy boxes that vibrates while you're sitting in it, uh, or you're seeing an IMAX film. None of those things you're getting when you're watching this film at home, and that's the problem that I have. I'm not enhancing the, the movie watching experience in any way. I'm watching it in the place where I do all of my work, consume all of my content, and since COVID, spend all of my time. There's nothing really enticing about that. And personally, I will probably wait until the price drops or it is available to stream. This is an interesting marketing idea. Uh, strange, but interesting. They may end up making more money than expected because we all have different ideas of value. If we're comparing it to a, a movie theater experience, if we have several family members, particularly uh, those who want to see the movie many times, as an individual, this just isn't economically something I'm interested in. But down the line, when it becomes quote unquote free, and I'm assuming that means free for Disney Plus subscribers, if I really wanted to see it and perhaps another list of movies or shows, then I might subscribe for a month. But uh, I'm cheap. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm frugal. <laughs> Will I be shelling out $30 for Mulan? No. I have no interest in the film, although I did like the song. How could I make a man out of you? But I have yet to see the film. I'm not really a Disney animation fan. I need to get into it. I have Disney+. Plus. 
but it's it's hard to watch Disney for me for some reason. <laughs> so, but I do like the premise. Um, I think the price is a bit too steep, and I think uh, the only real films I can kind of ask for that price is like Marvel films. I'm sorry. Yeah, like the X Men, Fantastic Four. Yeah, I, I would pay thirty for that once they get all that sorted and ready. Sure. Um, COVID also. This is not going away anytime soon, ladies and gentlemen. The streaming is now. It's not the future. It is now. We've seen what happened with Trolls. The was it? The third Trolls or the sequel, whichever one it was, that did good with video on demand and what started this whole trend. Yeah. The, the theaters are scared. They're shaking in their boots. They don't know what to do. And because of that... It creates competition and creates good things for us. And hopefully uh, practices and film production can get back under wraps and we can uh, get back to, you know, watching movies in the theater. All right. Thank you, everybody who sent in their voicemails. Quite a lot of range there in opinions. Uh, very, very interesting range of opinions from our listeners. Will Abby, did any of that stand out to you? It, you know, there were there was like one other one where somebody was like, "Yeah, I'll probably see this with my family," uh, but we kind of played the ones where people were like, "No, nah, I'm not going to do this." Um, is that about what you expected, though? Like, do, are you getting that same sense from people you know in your life that, yeah, this just doesn't seem quite worth it? Yeah, uh, John, you and I were talking a little bit about this before we started recording. I feel like uh, the kind of first run premium price streaming content makes sense if you have like a full family in your house. Like if you have three people, uh, it works out to about 10 bucks a ticket, which is at least around Kansas city, probably what you would pay to go to the theater. Uh, so that makes a certain amount of economic sense. Uh, but not everybody is in that situation. I myself am not in that situation. Uh, and so, when it comes to paying that much for a film, it's probably going to have to be something really extraordinary or something I feel is worth putting my financial oomph behind. So like Birds of Prey is a good example. That was something that I was willing to buy for like 25 bucks because I thought that Kathy Yan did an amazing job and it was the kind of thing that I wanted to see more of. Um, but this is, I, I feel like with the spotty reaction that the Disney live action remakes have gotten, um, I feel like a certain amount of trepidation is probably what I would have expected. Yeah, that's a good point because it's, it's not like Birds of Prey or it's not like a Avengers Endgame or something like that where you feel like you're going to miss out if you don't see it because it's a remake. You're, you know the story of Mulan. Like you might be interested to check this out a little bit, but it's not like you're going to watch it and it's going to be something that's going to be like a cultural moment in the sense that if you don't see it now, you're going to feel like you you're being left out or anything. I don't think that's the case for a bunch of people, but uh, yeah. What do you think? Will? yeah, I'm ultimately closest to the first uh, caller because I think for me, like if they had done this with maybe black widow, where it's like a movie that a lot of people really want to see and it's part of this connected universe. And it's like, okay, that makes sense. I feel like they'll earn their profits in, in this regard, but like, for a movie like this, I felt like the the key was that it was going to be in theaters. Like, what does this movie have that you wouldn't get from just watching Mulan at home? It'd be like, oh, well, you could go to the theater and see like this big martial arts movie on the big screen. And it's a character, you know, and it's like kind of a new take on it. And that makes sense for a theatrical experience. And obviously, Disney has their hands tied with this year and they wanted to release it 
in theaters a couple weeks before COVID happened uh, or shut everything down, at least. So, yeah, I mean, I think this was probably not the film to do this for. Like, I could see it maybe for another film and I could see like, I don't know if it's true that Soul is going to Disney Plus. I heard that rumor that they might try to push that for November, like around Thanksgiving. They might end up doing that for some movie of theirs, I imagine. Like they, they like that release date usually. In a normal year, they release some big movie around Thanksgiving. So it makes sense if like that or um, Black Widow was to drop on Disney Plus, like through this paid subscription or premiere access thing. But uh, as far as Mulan, yeah, I mean, I just think especially when you have the anime Mulan, which most people consider to be the better version of this anyway, without having to pay extra on Disney Plus right now, it's kind of hard, I feel, to make people be like, oh, yeah, well. This justifies spending, you know, twice what I would pay to see in theaters just to watch it either on my laptop or on my TV, which I mean, I know some people have really nice TV setups, but like for me, I don't. So if I wasn't reviewing this movie for this week, I wouldn't have gone out of my way or have paid or gone to see Disney's uh, new Mulan on their service. All right. Well, I think that's as decent a transition as we're going to get. Let's actually talk about the movie. Let's talk about Mulan, which, as we've mentioned already, it's the remake of the 1998 animated film, the same name. It's one of many films based or adapted around the Ballad of Mulan, which is a Chinese folklore tale. And this film stars Liu Yifei, who is a pretty, pretty big name in China. A lot of people know her over there. And uh, there's also a bunch of actors in here that Western audiences are pretty familiar with at this point, particularly Donnie Yen, who plays a commander character who's kind of a, a commander mentor instead of like love interests that we get in the animated one. Uh, we have Z Ma, who plays the father of Mulan. We have Jason Scott Lee as the main villain or, well, the, the one who's supposed to be the main villain, but we'll get to that. Uh, Gong Lee, who's the actual like interesting antagonist. Uh, Yusan An, who's kind of like a rival slash maybe love interest, and Jet Li, who plays the Emperor. And boy, do they do they rewrite the Emperor character to accommodate, that's for sure. But this film is directed by New Zealand director Nikki Caro, which makes sense if you look at her filmography, particularly Whale Rider, which uh, definitely very similar uh, to the story of Mulan in some ways. And a lot of screenwriters for this, as you can imagine, this is a Disney live action remake they tend to have a bunch of people writing and yeah i'm very curious what you all thought of this compared to the original i'll I'll start off and say you know it's the same plot i you know i said in my review it's it's conceptually identical you have a young woman who wants to fight in a war in the place of her father who is an aging war veteran so that he won't die and she wants to bring honor to her family the big twist on this film is that she's actually a gifted martial artist from the get-go. She has this special thing called chi, which is kind of like the inspiration behind what the force is. Uh, so you know, that's probably why some people will watch this and recognize some of the terminology. It's because chi is kind of how it's kind of what George Lucas drew inspiration from when he imagined what the force was in his Star Wars films. But she essentially, uh, it's explained pretty well in Avatar The Last Airbender, actually, the idea that it's like this energy that flows through you and some and everybody has it, but some people are more gifted with it. They're able to cultivate it and it's something yeah. um, more it, special. It means air, right? In Chinese? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just yeah. Sure. That's to do with things like chakras and all that. So 
the the idea behind Mulan in this case is that she's already she's pretty strong. She's a warrior, but this movie instead focuses more on the oppressive gender discrimination she has to face. She can't just share her gifts. She has to hold them back because the world is kind of shutting her down. And that that's like the main story. That's kind of what we're getting out of this movie. We're watching a young woman try to figure out, well, I could lie about who I really am and that'll only get me so far. And the big thing with this film is that it draws a lot of inspiration from wuxia, uh, which is just a genre of Chinese martial arts. And there's lots of incredible wuxia films in the 21st century. This film's kind of drawing from a lot of them, specifically like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragons. You have a lot of special effects, a lot of wiring tricks, a lot of incredible cinematography, just trying to showcase this like chi thing, making Mulan a bit of like a superhero almost. So while the original animated version was kind of like a musical comedy adventure, this is more of like a fantasy epic. It's like a war movie. It's got all kinds of uh, incredible action sequences. And that, that's kind of what they decided to do with the remake, which is interesting because that is pretty different from the animated version. We say all the time when we review these remakes, uh, most recently, I guess, would be like Lion King and Aladdin and Dumbo and Beauty and the Beast. Uh, sometimes they're very different. Like Dumbo is pretty different. Aladdin kind of in between. But, you know, Lion King and Beauty and the Beast, it's just live action versions of what we've seen before. They don't really change that much in any interesting way. Mulan, it's it's changing a lot uh, or it's changing a lot of important things and highlighting things that the animated didn't really focus on, like the action and all of that. Of course, it's still Disney. It's not that violent and th there's definitely no blood or anything like that. But this is what we got. And the responses so far have been pretty divided. And I'm, I want to start with you, Abby, uh, for your, our first official review with you as our co-host. What, what did you think of the live action Mulan? Did it make a fan out of you? It's a good pun. I like that. Uh, it made kind of a fan out of me. I feel like I had a mixed to fairly positive feeling about the film when I watched it and reading other people's reactions to it in the days that followed. I felt strangely like I kind of agreed with all of them in some way or another. Um, the one that I thought was the most interesting was uh, Alison Wilmore's review for, uh, for Vulture, where she mentioned that uh, in a way the live action Mulan is being made to kind of appeal more to Chinese audiences, or at least what Disney thinks Chinese audiences want more importantly. Um, and the result is that it ended up being kind of a, a more buttoned up and and dour version of that story um and maybe not a full success in that regard um i think that there are some parts that i really like uh i like the interaction between um mulan and uh gong lee's character uh that's an interesting play on the uh the falcon character from the uh the animated film i like how they expanded that and uh kind of turn her into a more full-fledged character in her own right and kind of a, a counterpoint regarding um the need the or the 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 cultural edict to kind of hide your gift away as a woman which i think applies in a more timely fashion to right now in addition to the like the culture of the film obviously um i think that was an interesting relationship i don't know that it really fully um paid off in the end um 
but uh, the thing that I miss the most were the songs. <laughs> um, there are there are no songs, uh, or at least no musical numbers in uh, the new film, but there are a lot of musical nods to uh, yeah. the original songs in the film. Um, and while I appreciated, there were a couple of moments that I think kind of repurpose some musical themes from from the original film in ways that I thought were kind of powerful. Um, but mostly when you hear that, what you wish you were experiencing were the actual musical numbers because they're so much fun and the songs are so well written. Um, so like with a lot of the Disney remakes, I think what happens most often when you're watching this is that you're interested by some of the things that are new, but mostly you're just reminded of how good the thing is that also exists. So it kind of cancels itself out for me a little bit. Yeah, it's it's fun. I think we're we're pretty aligned on a lot of this, I think. I had that same feeling where while I was watching the movie, I was like, you know what? This is working on me. Like, this is effective stuff. And I, I wasn't like over the moon. Uh, there was at one point where I thought this film was going to be great. But then it just, it did something that I didn't see coming necessarily. And I was like, oh, this is great because it's not just that this this character is really gifted. The film is taking it in a totally new direction from the animated one which happens like in the middle of the movie. And I was like, this is, this is what I want to see. I want to see something different, but then it kind of doesn't take it in a different direction. It's kind of like a red herring almost. So I ended up being like, oh, well, okay, this is just okay, I guess. Um, but yeah, we're, we have a lot to talk about, but uh, will, you know, I'm, I know you haven't been the biggest fan of a lot of these Disney live action remakes. So how, how does this one land for you? I mean, to be fair, I mean, I, I haven't, dismissed all of them i think i was fairly favorable on dumbo and i I liked the cinderella kind of brought a one and peach dragon if that counts but yeah i mean as far as the um the newest ones like aladdin and the lion king and then a few years back beauty and beast those ones just represent what i don't like about the studio's new regimen which is just basically like heating up the microwave with uh or heating up your leftovers in the microwave and just Hoping that you don't mind that it's basically the same thing you had before, but slightly worse. And yeah, uh, for me, yeah, it's just a little drier. It's it's not quite as flavorful, not quite as colorful. Where's the and, color? Uh, yeah. Yeah. But um, as far as this one, I think it's a step in the right direction. I think this one, like they they're pretty good about, you know, stepping away from doing the same movie over again. I, I think the cast is really solid. I, I, it is very refreshing to see a primarily Chinese cast in a major Hollywood blockbuster. And I think, you know, that's great for a lot of reasons. And I, I think if I had had the chance to see this on the big screen, seeing a big martial arts movie, a multi-million dollar, hundred plus million dollar uh, martial arts movie in theaters, I think that might have helped me uh, move away from some of my criticisms, perhaps. But I just ultimately found that the movie itself, while certainly not as tedious as like Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin were, and certainly not as just like cynical and empty as I found Lion King to be. Uh, I just ultimately just didn't fully connect with this one because it felt like it did have a bit of like an identity crisis where I think the middle segment, like you guys are talking about, where it is kind of its own thing. It's a little bit more subdued. It's it's trying to be a little bit more like even mature at times than the original Disney animated film. I think those segments stood out to me and that was where I was kind of driving with the film. And I was like, OK, I can see where this is going. I kind of appreciate this. I'm digging this. And then I just found the rest of it either towards the beginning and then towards the end to be just not very eventful. It just felt yeah. like I, I mean, like the action's fine. Like it's not bad, but I found it to be very editing heavy. It didn't really like 
give the choreography a chance to stand out in a way that I felt like you were able to separate this from several other martial arts movies from uh, China and otherwise. But I just found the acting itself to be like kind of serviceable. Like I think uh, our lead here is really strong as an action presence. I think as a dramatic presence, she didn't really do much for me. She kind of felt a bit one note throughout the film. And as much as I love seeing Donnie Yen and Jet Li and stuff, it felt like they didn't really have much to do here. Unfortunately, Jet Li just sits down or gets held hostage throughout the whole thing. It's like, if you're going to hire Jet Li, like, have him, like, kick somebody in the face or something. Like, I, he, he has, hey, look, he has three and a half seconds of kicking around. So I guess. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's just like, it's the same, like, with the Expendables and Forbidden Kingdom. It's just like, Hollywood just never knows, never really does enough with Jet Li in my opinion but that's a whole I thing. agree with that yeah but um as far as the movie itself like I don't hate it like I didn't feel disdain like I did for the Lion King and I wasn't like aggressively bored as I was for Aladdin I just felt like there was potential here sometimes it lived up to it for the most part it just left me a bit wanting unfortunately yeah well, I think all three of us are probably like you know it's a range I guess there's a bit of a spectrum here but it sounds like kind of what Abby was saying it's like you agree with the negative stuff. It just depends on how much that like hampers your overall take. And it sounds that like, it sounds like we have like the same criticisms to an extent, but I guess like for me, I appreciated some of the good stuff enough that I, I definitely like this a little bit more than some people maybe, but I I've seen this movie twice now. I'd say that it improves on the second watch in a lot of ways, but then it also reveals more of what you don't like. So it, it just continues that like mixed feeling you might have. And it's funny because, you know, I watched this with uh, not, I watched this by myself the first time. The second time I watched it with my partner and her family. And, you know, I asked them before we started watching, I was like, well, so you like the original animated one? And they were all like, yeah, like they really like it. Like um, one of them was like uh, one of the sisters. She was like, I love it. Like could quote the whole movie basically. So, okay, we went into it and they were just kind of like, they were picking holes in this thing. It was like, I was watching it with cinema sense. It was, it was awesome. But they were like, kind of like oh, her hair is down. Like, but that doesn't make any sense. And it's like, what? She's being a little jerk when she's like a kid or whatever. And they, they were, they were kind of just like, I don't know. They couldn't get engrossed in it. Maybe that's because they weren't watching it in the theater and, and that kind of hampers like your ability to do that. But what was most telling to me is like after the movie, like they didn't hate it. They were like, Oh, so, you know, that's fine. You know, you know, one of them was like really not into it. And then the other two were like, it was okay. But then we ended up watching like uh, clips from the original right after. Cause they were like, let's watch the animated one. Let's get into that right now. And we did, we watched like our favorite moments from the animated one on like a laptop. Cause it's Disney plus it's right there. And that was more fun. You know, it was more enjoyable because the animated one just is pretty lasting. It, it it has really great music. I've said for a long time that I think, you know, the animated Mulan is one of my personal favorite Disney animated films. And I, I just, even though it's not the best at anything, like it doesn't have the best humor, doesn't have the best action or characters or anything. There's something just really rewatchable about it. It It is still pretty funny and it, it still looks really good. And I don't know. It's like comfort food Disney in a, in a really good way. And I always, always find myself wanting to rewatch it. And uh, two songs from it, I think are some of Disney's best uh, reflection and I'll make a man out of you. But, you know, Abby, so you mentioned, you know, they don't, they don't have the songs in here, but they quote the lyrics a few times in the dialogue, you know, and I, that, that was, that was like a fun little nod of like, all right, this, this is definitely a remake. Like they're, they're taking the lyrics from the songs and kind of like 
putting them in there, sort of like maybe not shoehorning, but adding them in. What, what did you think of the nostalgia though? Were you feeling nostalgic for the original? You kind of mentioned it reminded you of the old thing, but how do you think that they, they balanced it overall? Do you think they were able to um, keep you from wanting to rewatch the original right after? Uh, they weren't able to keep me from wanting to rewatch the original right after just because I, I have a lot of fondness for the original movie. Uh, like you said, the songs are really strong. But also, I think one of the things that that makes that movie stand out for me is that I think there are some really interesting visual moments from that uh, that animated film, like the uh, yeah. uh, the shot of the the Hun army coming down the uh, the mountain. And uh, the avalanche right after are really impressive pieces of animation. And uh, some of those, obviously, those those moments get replayed in a live action sense in uh, in the remake. But I feel like in this particular climate where we are so often seeing action set pieces like that, and they often happen mostly within a computer anyway, um, I, I feel like the effect kind of gets lost because you're not really experiencing something that has some of the same limitations that say animation does where that happens and you're just kind of bowled over that somebody could actually do that. Um, I do think that there are some moments like I, I really appreciated during the, uh, the training sequence. I think they, uh, uh, Harry Gregson Williams, the, uh, composer inserts some bits of, uh, reflection into the, the points where she's starting to, yeah. Uh, where Mulan is starting to recognize her own strength and that she can actually live into that fully in her current situation and you start to see her thrive, that I, I found kind of touching because it takes that moment and where in the animated movie, it's more of a group thing, like everybody's getting better. Um, it takes it and it focuses it specifically on her own development, which I think is um, is different and I think kind of empowering from a feminist angle, which I think this movie does try to do. Yeah, I would, I, I'm really glad you mentioned the the way that the live action does or doesn't sort of like build on the like the most iconic scenes. Like I, I actually I, I didn't mention this, but when we were watching it as a group, the scene that was most disappointing was when she's putting on the armor for the first time because she doesn't put on the armor and she doesn't do all of the like cutting of the hair. And it was less about like the details of that. It was more of like making a moment out of that scene. And the animated one is so emotional. And it's so like, it just makes you swell up of like, she's doing this for her father and it's, it's so epic. And then, but in the live action, it's pretty rushed and it's a longer movie even though. And I don't know, they don't, they don't really make much of it. It just sort of like skips ahead to her writing out and like, you don't see her put on the armor. She just already has it on. And I don't know, there was something kind of lost about that. And then I'd also say that, yeah, you know. I think, you know, Will, you mentioned the middle part. I, I kind of felt like this was this movie's like Wonder Woman moment where you were able to watch this character finally like be unleashed. And it was really cool to see. But I think like it ties into like my main issue with this movie is that I just don't think that its message is all that compelling. I think the idea here is that, you know, our character is really special and strong, but her big problem is that she has to lie about it which is kind of interesting, I guess, but like, I don't know, it, it isn't as interesting to me as like, like, I, I feel like kids watching this, 
don't have an issue with sharing themselves. Like I feel like our this current generation watching this movie is like, I know I'm great. I'm I'm on social media all the time. I broadcast myself everywhere. And so to me, it was kind of lost of like what this per- character was going through. I just don't know if it's going to resonate with a lot of people. I think the like the gender discrimination thing is obviously the right angle to go with here. But I, don't know, I guess they just didn't execute it execute it in a way that I thought is going to last or be as effective as the original because the original kind of shows like more of the struggle and, and you know it's a different take on it for a different generation and i think it's smart that they updated it i just think they updated it in a way that feels more of like what they think people want instead of something they think people should respond to like disney usually has really surprising takeaways in their movies they're able to you know put in things that uh, people won't see coming so all right let's get into our final thoughts and grades on Mulan. Starting with you, Abby. It sounds like we're we're probably pretty close. It sounds like yeah, just kind of mixed mixed to fairly positive. Uh, but what what's your grade for this? And uh, any final thought? Um, I would give this maybe a C plus. Uh, there are some parts of it that I think are interesting. Um, it, it were it not for the existence of a uh, original movie that a lot of people, myself included, really enjoy. Uh, I think it could potentially stand on its own uh, as a as a pretty decent film. Um, but yeah, I think as it is, it's just mostly okay, kind of undercuts itself, but ends up fine. So yeah, solid middle of the road for me. All right. And Will Ashen? Yeah, I, I think C plus is about where I am as well. I mean, I was looking forward to this one a little bit more than your average Disney live action remake because it felt like there was some more potential here to do something interesting, and unique. And to some extent, I think the movie lives up to that. Um, in addition to stuff we were talking about before, I think the cinematography is really sharp. I mean, I do like the production design. And I think some of the performances like uh, I, I apologize if I butchered the name, but Taizma, uh, Zima, played, Zima, who plays uh, Mulan's father, as always, I thought he was great. And, you know, another film from 2020 where I felt like he was one of the strongest aspects in an otherwise kind of ho-hum film, um, which is a, a shame because I think he's a tremendous actor. But in any case, uh, yeah, I think the movie itself, um, you know, I wasn't mad I saw it like some of the other ones. Like it didn't feel like it was objectively like wasting my time. It didn't feel like it was just like retracing the steps. I do think they were trying to do something a little bit more unique and something that would at least justify having a remake for this. But I just think the execution itself is ultimately kind of clumsy. And I just don't think they stuck the landing particularly well, which is a shame because the moments that do work, uh, I think do showcase a film that would, I think be a pretty interesting step for these live action remakes. But alas, as it is, it's a pretty mixed bag. Yeah, I'm struggling. I, you know, I, I, I can't decide if I'm C plus or B minus. I'm trying, I'm trying to remember what I liked, you know, and, and trying to be as positive as I can. And yeah, it's just the, the more I think about some good stuff in this movie, the more I'm like, yeah, well, but this other thing. And yeah, I just, I have a feeling that this movie isn't going to really last the test of time. I, I don't think a lot of kids are going to watch it and prefer it over the animated. And, you know, that's not the only barometer for success, obviously. And especially because it's kind of like you said, well, this is a step in the right direction. I'm glad that it's not like Lion King and, you know, there there is something kind of interesting is like Abby mentioned the idea that they did make this to be very successful, not just here, but also for Chinese audiences. And that's kind of a, a business model. That's something that they see as the future of movies that can be huge hits 
both here and in China. And as a result, it, it does feel like it was made by a committee instead of by, you know, a filmmaker who is really putting their stamp on this material. I, I don't think we really get that. So unfortunately, because of that and because I think, you know, for every good performance I can I can name out here with Z Ma, you also have him just sort of like spouting like really obvious stuff at the very ending that's pretty cringeworthy which i guess i won't give away but yeah, the, I mean, the dialogue like, in general is not yeah great. <laughs> very stilted movie. and yeah it, it's a shame because there's so much good here there's like will said a lot of potential but yeah there's there's just none of that that disney magic that i think a lot of us were hoping for so i guess i'll have to say it's a pretty high c plus it's not your typical c plus of like probably don't recommend it to most people i think we're checking out if you have a Disney Plus subscription, but not for $30. Definitely when it comes out December and you're interested in seeing it, that's a pretty safe bet that you'll at least enjoy it with your family around then. So that's Mulan. With that, let's move into a film that is could be the opposite of Mulan in every single possible way. Uh, maybe not every single way, but most of them. I'm thinking of ending things. We just talked about a fairly generic sort of like action Disney epic designed to appeal to as many people as possible. Well, now we're talking about a Charlie Kaufman film. Uh, He wrote and directed this new film that just came out on Netflix. It's based on a novel that came out in 2016 of the same name by Ian Reid. And this film stars Jesse Plemons, Jesse Buckley, so two Jessies, Tony Collette and David Thewlis. And I'm not even going to try to explain or set up this movie. I think the honor is yours, Will. I know that you just read Charlie Kaufman's book. Uh, You're probably a bigger fan of Kaufman in general than I am. I like a lot of his stuff. I don't think I liked Anomalisa nearly as much as you did. Although I, you know, I think it's a good film. And uh, I'm a fan of his. I I like uh, Eternal Sunshine, and I I like Adaptation. But uh, and I, I like Synecdoche, New York. I know some people really think. That's like a, a huge old masterpiece, but yeah, we'll set the stage for us. What's this one about? And uh, what do you think? Oh uh, yeah, I mean to clarify, I mean I'm still working through Charlie Kaufman's book Ant Kind, but I did read Ian Reed's book this weekend, which is what the film is based on. Uh, and uh, as far as the film itself, uh, the plot it's pretty simple at its core, or as far as the outline I guess is concerned, which is just basically like a uh, youngish couple uh, are visiting the the boyfriend's parents who live kind of in like the midwest in this very kind of farmy uh house uh in the middle of nowhere and uh we follow them as they're traveling to this place and jesse's buckley character is having some second thoughts about their relationship wondering if it's really meant to last or if this is the moment where it should break and as she goes to this house uh she quickly realizes that things are just kind of off kilter things aren't quite right just in general, a lot of weird stuff's happening. A lot of abject things start to occur. And it serves as uh, most Co- Charlie Kaufman movies do as a big like allegory for uh, aging and uh, dependency and uh, our place in the world and things like that, which uh, I imagine for a lot of people just kind of make puts them in a funk and just kind of... Uh, <laughs> make some question what the point is for me. I love it. I love that stuff uh, for Charlie Kaufman. Not that everything he's done has been like amazing or wonderful, but uh, more, more often than not, I do really like his stuff, including on Anomalisa, which was my favorite movie of that year, 2015. Uh, and this is certainly one of my favorites for this year, but uh, I'll let you share your thoughts first. Well, yeah, I'm curious what you think, Abby, because I don't, I don't really know 
what kind of your background is with Kaufman, if you're a fan, if you're not a fan, what you are a fan of and all of that fun stuff. And your expectations going into this, were you excited to see I'm thinking of ending things? Or were you kind of like me where I was excited, but I was also like, oh man, this thing is going to mess me up, isn't it? Um, I was I was a little bit of both. I, I enjoy Charlie Kaufman, I think, more as a screenwriter than I do as a filmmaker. Uh, somebody made an interesting Same. point. I, I think it was uh, Phil Iskov who co-hosts the um, uh, podcast, like it's 1999 podcast, uh, that... Uh, when other people direct Kaufman scripts, it's creative and interesting and curious. When he directs his own stuff, it can sometimes be depressing, bordering on just very, very sad. So uh, I I kind of went into it with with some some uncertainty, some mixed thoughts. Uh, but I I really appreciated uh, I appreciated the film. I had a really hard time figuring out what it was really about uh, while I was watching it. But it's one of those things that I think produces a lot more interesting thoughts and conversation about it after you've had some time to kind of mull it over. Um, I, uh, in particular, kind of was interested in the idea of how many of our thoughts and feelings, uh, especially in relationship, are our own. Um, I think Jesse Buckley's character at the beginning of the movie talks about um, like the ideas in movies kind of worming their way into your brain and living there. Um, and I think we see a lot of that throughout the movie. Like uh, there are entire stretches of of dialogue that come directly from uh, from from films, uh, from film reviewers. Like there's a section where she just basically turns into Pauline Kael for uh, about five or ten minutes. Yeah, um, probably the and, scene of the year for me, at least. Sorry, <laughs> I, I said probably the scene of the year for me, at least. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's great. And they don't say Pauline Kale, but you figure it out because you see the there's a, a hint earlier. You see a book by her. And then when she starts doing the review, she like does like an impression. I was like, wait, that's she has so a it's, cigarette. It's subtle. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh-huh. It's and that's it's for me, like I, I think super film nerds pick up on certain things. For me, there's a specific thing that she says about Gina Rowlands, which is directly from a Pauline Kale review where you realize the entire thing is an actual review that has been put into a monologue, <laughs> uh, which I think is insane, but very specifically Charlie Kaufman. Um, and uh, I think when you contrast that with the way that she interacts with um, with Jesse Plemons' parents um, and their kind of varying personalities and their varying amounts of dependence on each other and uh, on their son, Jake, uh, I, I think there's a lot of questions there about how how much of us is ourself and how much of it is what we depend on from other people and how much of it is the art and the things that we encounter in our lives that somehow kind of worm their way into our brains and end up defining us, which um, I, I think it's really, I, I think it's a fascinating take. And the most um, the most frequent thought that I had while I was watching it was that it felt like being in somebody else's brain, which is Ironic because Charlie Kaufman also wrote Being John Malkovich about a person who literally goes inside somebody else's brain. Um, so there's all kinds of weird thought trails and wormholes that I had watching this that kind of collapsed in on each other. Yeah, this this movie does what really good allegorical films like Mother, for example, do, where it's open to a lot of interpretations without contradicting itself too much. I think that my favorite vein of this movie is reading it as... Charlie Kaufman really does not like film critics. And I think in general, I, I really 
yeah, his makes yeah. it very clear. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that's the thing is like he says something really interesting here. Like, this gets back into what I was talking about with Mulan, where it doesn't tell you anything new. It doesn't tell you anything you haven't heard before. This movie is actually pretty challenging. And this is, I know I'm comparing two movies that are not supposed to be compared, but just the idea that it's saying something along the lines of watching too many movies and consuming too much art turns you into like a replicant into somebody who just regurgitates information without having any original ideas. I think that's a very scathing criticism and it rings true in a lot of ways. I think it's a little unfair in some ways, but I really appreciate that he is trying to say something like this to the people he knows are going to watch this. I think not a lot of people are going to watch this on Netflix who are necessarily film critics or people who've read a lot of Wordsworth or people who are like coastal elites, I guess. I don't want to be pejorative about it, but there is this prevailing notion throughout the film that we don't have original thoughts. Everything is just like, if we really are in someone's brain, which I had that same idea, uh, reading of it, Abby, then this is what it would be like, is everything is being filtered through things that already exist, right? It's the, I think the, the movie Feels Good Man kind of gets into this of where, you know, memes, the original idea for a meme outside of the internet is everything is sort of a replication of something else. And Coffin, you know, the other vein of this is that it's almost like we're watching an assembly cut of a movie because as it goes along, it's like we're watching all of his filmmaking decisions happen without anything being corrected. Like names will change, colors will change, editing will change, somebody's job description will change from this to that and then go back to it. It's sort of like he decided that you know, that is the creative process is constantly changing things to appeal to other people instead of you just being fully creative. But it's, it's funny how like you can look at this movie as a puzzle and be totally lost while you're watching. And I think most people will be like, what am I watching here? And then kind of like what you said, Abby, where afterward you'll start thinking about, okay, what did this mean? What did this mean? What did this mean? And in some some ways, I wish you didn't have to do that as much. And I, I hope you can focus, people who watch this after listening to our conversation, I think you can just focus on how you feel during the movie. I think that that's more important. And I think the existential dread in here, the whole, you know, I, I think the, the most superficial reading of this film is it feels like Jesse Plemons is like imagining what's going on. And we're in sort of like his sad life um, and his regret and the relationships that didn't work out. And it's like, he's trying to process all of it at the same time. Like, why did this happen to me? Why, you know, why did she want to end things or why, why do my parents not love me? And it's kind of like a reversal of who the protagonist is in a lot of ways. And, you know, I don't want to get too much into detail because of that, because of spoilers, but I just want to say, I think that the movie does work because all that stuff is effective enough. And then after the movie, it's like a treasure trove of being like, oh, maybe this means this and maybe this means that. And, you know, that that's what really clicked for me. But yeah, Will, I want to hear from you, you know, a little bit more of uh, how, did, how did you feel during this movie? <laughs> and um, how are you feeling now? Um, Well, I want to uh, talk about your one point, which is that I think even though I do think it's it's meant to be scathing as far as like our relationship to pop culture and the idea of um, acknowledging that like, most people who consume art might inadvertently not have their own original thoughts. I think that's true throughout the film, but I also think the, the fact that his style, his directing style, I mean, is so evocative of David Lynch throughout the film, even down to like 
like people's like, you know, like they'll leave a room, then come back and like like their bandages and where it was before and like different things like that. Like, I felt like that was kind of like his way of acknowledging that, like, he's not necessarily above that. Like, I felt like he was like aware of like, yeah, like, you know, like, I think this is a universal truth as far as like what we have what our relationship to pop culture. But at the same time, it's like I'm not fully above that, like even in my own directorial style, like I'm mimicking other filmmakers. So it's like I think. I don't take that as fully like holier than thou necessarily. I don't know if that's necessarily what you were saying, but I think. No, I agree with you. Yeah. 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 I agree with you completely. I don't, I think that he is being scathing on film critics in particular, but it's, right. he's also doing it in a universal way. So it right. applies to everyone. And that's a fair point that yeah. he kind of proves out that it doesn't apply to him. Right. Well, I think it just, that, that helps avoid being like too like smarmy or like being like too self-righteous, which I mean, I'm sure some people will say that and some have already have, I'm sure. But I mean, that's how I took it, at least. But as far as the film itself, um, I do think it's true that like it is kind of intentionally very unnerving, very unsettling and very bleak as far as its message. But for some reason, and I'm still processing why this is, but I found the movie weirdly very comforting <laughs> in a way that I can't really fully explain right now. I think I need to watch it again to figure out why. But I think there is acknowledgement of that, that sense of like aging and like knowing that like what your life is may not be within your grasp control, even if you do live out your best life. And I think for me, that's, that makes it a parallel to Synecdoche, New York in many obvious ways. But I feel like that film is a lot more like fearful and kind of more like at all and like terror about that aspect. Whereas this film is kind of like Kaufman acknowledging that again. And, and there is like a melancholy to it, but he's also like having fun with it and experimenting as a filmmaker. And I guess that's where I kind of push back against the idea that like Kaufman is a secondary filmmaker, even though I do think he's certainly the stronger screenwriter overall. I do think his directorial style here does showcase that like he is willing to be very experimental and weird and not abstract in a way that, you know, I mean, I'm sure if Spike Jones or Michel Gondry had directed this, they would have done as good or maybe even better job. I don't know. But I do think as a director, he really does step up here in a way that showcases that as far as his take on his material, he is willing to be like very, you know, cerebral again, but in a way that is almost sometimes kind of playful and absurd and like acknowledging, you know, like these very heady, deep ideas, but in a way that's like very cinematically rich. It also helps that um the DP, I forget their name, but it was the person that did Cold War. So the movie looks gorgeous in a way that, you know, it does make it depressing that most people, if not everybody, will be seeing this in their houses on Netflix as opposed to any intended theatrical release. But at the same time, I do really appreciate that Netflix will allow people to, like you said, allow them to like kind of really dive into the puzzle and like watch and rewatch and go back and like watch certain clips and like kind of dive into this film a little bit more in depth than they might have if it, they had to wait for an extended period of time for this to hit home video after a theatrical release. So I'm grateful and a little sad this is a Netflix film, but at the same time, I feel like only Netflix would allow Charlie Kaufman to do this. So overall, I'm grateful. Yeah, because it has been a long time since his last film. So, and, and a lot, of, I mean, it's always, there's always stretches for sure. Because I think yeah. Anomalisa was like seven years after. Five years ago, um, uh, 2015. No, I'm saying Anomalisa was seven years after Synecdoche, New York. Oh, right. Yeah, um, yeah, of course. Yeah. And so, this might be his last one for all I know. I mean, who knows? No, he's, he's doing, uh, well, he wrote uh, Chaos Walking. Right. I mean, he's a director. Year. I mean, who knows if he'll get funding for his next film? I have no idea. Who knows? <laughs> I feel yeah. like he might co-direct again. But yeah, that's true. But all right, um, Abby, did do you find this comforting? Um, that's that's an interesting take. I I feel like there are some parts of it that are comforting, um, but comforting is an odd word to use. Uh, and I fully acknowledge that. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd say in in 
uh, almost defeatist comforting kind of a sense. Like uh, there are a few moments in, in the film that I think have kind of a comforting feel to them, but the kind of comforting where something goes really horribly for you and then somebody who is close to you and kind says, I know this was bad. Life is hard. That's okay. Um, so there's kind of a comfort in that. Um, but it's, uh, I, I think it's, it's surrounded by a lot of kind of mental flotsam and jetsam that, uh, I, I, I think is kind of unnerving, but also the fact that it's so recognizable, I think also maybe makes it a little bit comforting as well that like, everybody's brain really is that jumbled inside. Um, and there is kind of a universal existential fear of how many of my thoughts are my own. Um, who, who am I, what is my identity in the middle of all of this? Um, so in a way it's kind of nice to have that sense of like, we're all kind of dealing with the same thing, even if the thing that we're dealing with is really hard, which, uh, I think could be the human experience. It could be like right now where everything feels the same and repeated, but also kind of different and strange. All right. I, this is one of those rare times where I'm more excited about final thoughts and grades because I don't know what's about to happen because I'm, I'm very split on how I would recommend this film. I think that it's a must watch for cinemaholics. Like if you watch a lot of movies, if you do follow a lot of film criticism, and I know a lot of our listeners do, right? They listen to the show and they, they like to engage a lot with film reviews. I think that they will appreciate this a lot. I think that you can watch this and even if it doesn't fully emotionally resonate, I, I think that it's a worthwhile experience. And I think that it's just, it's technically a well-made movie. And Jesse Buckley is just a performer. I think that's I am shocked she's not already an A-lister, but she's getting there for sure. Um, she's an indie darling at this point. We haven't said enough about her performance, which I thought was great. Yeah. I, I mean, she, I, I will say the only weakness is that I think that the first 20 or 30 minutes really amplify what's so great for her as a performer. But then I think eventually the movie gets away from her. Not her as a performer that she does anything wrong, but I think the writing shifts away from her, and I'm a, I don't know exactly how I feel about that because I do really I do really like Jesse Plemons. I think he's also you know not just an indie darling, but he's certainly somebody who has really uh, earned a place in being a, a recognizable and reliable, consistently good actor. But the the decision to sort of like shift the focus over to him it's risky, and I think that. You know, Kaufman is somebody that I appreciate for his bold risks. And so on that sense, I'm like, I'm a, I'm between a, a B plus and an A minus. I feel like if I give it the A minus, it's like I'm saying, everybody go watch this. You know, this is, this is something that everyone's going to appreciate. That's not really the case. I think this is, this does have a limited appeal. So I'm kind of at a really, really high B plus, but I want to say A minus in the, just in the sense that maybe it's because we haven't seen a lot of good films lately, like really, really good films that I want to, to hype this one up a little bit more. But I think where I'm at right now is a very high B plus. You will probably get a lot out of this. I just don't think that everyone's going to really love it. And I don't think it's stronger than a lot of Kaufman's other work, especially the ones that he wrote and did not direct. I think it's, it's, kind of where I was at with Anomalisa, except slightly a little bit better. But uh, even though I, I have come to appreciate that film more over time, I don't think I loved it nearly as much as a lot of other people did in 2015. But all right, Will Ashton, uh, what about you? I, this is a hard movie to put a grade on for sure. But uh, if you had to. 
Uh, sure. I mean, I, I will say that the one thing I really like about Kaufman as far as a writer is that I think especially like with adaptation, this like he recognizes that um, he could just, you know, retell the story or do something, you know, like in that vein. But like he takes the story here, which is by extension as a book, kind of a simple story. Like it's a pretty cut and dry story as far as the the Ian Reed's take of it. And he expands upon in a way that gives it its own identity and and still keeps the core ideas of the book there, but allows it to flourish in his own individual style. And I think that is something uh, as far as like being a huge film fan that I really appreciate. And I think that's something that he really excels at here. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm a little biased because Kaufman's a big uh, fan. I'm a big fan of Charlie Kaufman. I, I just love his style. I think he's a fun filmmaker in my sense. I know fun's probably a weird word to use for him, but um I really like his stuff. I would say I agree with you that I don't think this is like a top five film for him. Like I would definitely put like adaptation being John Malkovich and Eternal Sunshine and uh, Anomalisa, I'd say even above this. But um, as far as like his style, I mean, it's definitely head and shoulders above most of the films I see this year. And uh, I will end up seeing this year, probably unless the the last quarter is really going to knock my socks off. But considering that we don't even know what's going to come out, I I don't know if that's going to be the case. So. For me, I'll give it a low A minus. Um, I, when I was watching, I think it was closer to a high B plus. But just the fact that it does reward you with uh, thinking about it and really contextualizing and stuff. I think that's what makes it worthy of the low A. So pretty easy A minus for me. All right. And Abby Olchesi, where are you at? I'm very curious uh, if you're going to be closer to me, Will, or somewhere else. Um, I think I'm closer to, to, to Will on this one. Um, I think there are some films that work more like i mean film film is an art form obviously but i think there are some movies that work better when you consider them as modern art than you consider them as just a movie um i feel like charlie kaufman often fits into that category and i feel like this movie especially fits in that category um so uh i i would give it an a minus in terms of like it's it's not necessarily for everybody but not every piece of art is for everybody and i think that this is definitely uh this is definitely art this is somebody trying to express their feelings and opinions in a kind of abstract and impressionistic way um which i think fits my definition of of that term um and so different people are going to engage with it in different ways and i feel like that is kind of the point so uh in that sense i think it's pretty successful all right, that is an A minus average for I'm thinking of any things. It's available on Netflix right now. Definitely comes highly recommended by all three of us. All right, that'll do it for our reviews this week. Next week, we are probably going to be talking about the Broken Hearts Gallery, which is a new romantic comedy. It depends on if we can catch it. I think it's getting limited theatrical release. If it's playing at a drive-in, we'll see. I'm I'm kind of curious about this one. It has Geraldine Viswanathan in it. Uh, there's also Renapal, which hits VOD. This is a new thriller that stars Will Wheaton. Very interested in this one as well. Hopefully we can catch it. And then Netflix has a bunch of things coming out. There's the sequel to The Babysitter, which is a film I think we talked about in 2017. It's called The Babysitter Killer Queen. So it's like a comedy horror. And uh, Bella Thorne, I think, is back for this, along with Robbie Amell, Judah Lewis from the first one. And then there's a new documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma, which I'm very curious about. It's a documentary about kind of uh, what's going on in Silicon Valley, social media, how it's impacting society, all kinds of stuff like that. And then the film I'm looking forward to the most is Hashtag Alive, which is a South Korean zombie film. 
and it stars Park Shin Hai, who I think you'll recognize from Burning. And uh, it's it looks really fun. And even though I'm kind of sick of zombies in general, I am totally down for the vibe that I got from this trailer. Uh, there's one other thing. I think, Abby, you know more about this one. There's a new HBO Max movie coming out as well. Uh, yeah, I think Unpregnant is the name of it. Uh, and it looks like kind of a fun uh, road trip sort of movie uh, that stars Haley Lee Richardson, who I am always in the mood to watch more of. Um, so I'm I'm looking forward to checking that out. I am sold if it has Haley Lou Richardson. Always a fan of her work. Yeah, you're a big fan of hers. Me too, oh, yeah. of course. I even yeah. watched Five Feet Apart in her honor. Oh, man. Well, we both watched it, right? We covered it on the show. That's true. We covered it yeah. on the show. Uh, that is one of our best performing posts or reviews on cinemaholics.com. Funny the written one or the, the, the episode? One. Oh, wow. I think I wrote that. Yeah. So I think, oh, wow. oh did, I must have wrote something for the young folks. I don't remember who wrote did it. Did I? I don't know. I'm trying to remember. I, I felt like I wrote something for the site, but I forget. Maybe. If you did, I'm sure it was excellent. But (laughs) Uh, Okay. (laughs) That'll do it for our show this week. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, Abby, for coming on the show as our new official co-host. Looking forward to more and more episodes with you. Thanks. Yeah, I'm excited to be part of the team. All right. From the Internet, California, I am John Agurney. From the Internet, Pennsylvania, I'm Washington. From the Internet, Kansas City, I'm Abby Olchesi. See you next time.